Hello, and welcome to Ipsy Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm Benjamin Edwards, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, William S. Boyd School of Law. My guest is Kathy Wong, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Utah College of Law. We will discuss her article, Faux Contracts, which will be published by the Virginia Law Review later this year. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Ben. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to talk. Uh, are you, Thanks are for you doing back, this with me. Are you back in Utah now? I know you were just visiting at Berkeley and have another you know trip to, to Penn scheduled soon. Yeah. So I got back to Utah last Sunday. I'm currently teaching summer session. I went to Aaliyah in the middle. So that's all like it's all a little bit. It's all a little bit. Um, uh, you know, go, 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 I guess. Um, but I'm not going to Penn until 2021. So I'm good. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I hope, I hope you get a break and a little bit of time to, to rest. Uh, I know you're working on this article right now and trying to get it ready to, to go to print. When do you think it'll, it'll come out? I think it's going to be in the fall 2019 issue. So I just saw like the second to last version of it that I get to work on. So, um, it's, it's, it's almost done. Yeah, it's 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 really it's a it's a fantastic piece, uh, and and with you know the last you know two of, of your articles getting selected for the top ten in, in corporate law uh, and securities law in 2017 and 2018, do you do you feel pressure or will you, will you feel let down if this one is not in the top ten? No, because both times I've just been like completely surprised. I'm just like doing something normal, and then um, I'm. Uh, I told this to Bob Thompson actually when I saw him that I'm I'm actually not on the list of voters, so I didn't know that the vote had occurred. Uh, so I've just been surprised both times. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, it, it's you know th- this piece is also you know just you know fantastic, and so so with, with that, you might as well go ahead and jump into it. Uh, what what do you what do you mean by faux contracts? What are faux contracts? So what the piece is talking about is. Um, Agreements that are formal looking, but they're either unenforceable or they're not enforced or just maybe very, very, very rarely enforced. So an M&A term sheet is a really good example. So um, and a term sheet of mergers and acquisition is, uh, acquisitions is formal, signed. Um, it looks like a contract. It has, you know, it might even say like execution copy, have like a signature page. You know, it looks really like a real contract. Um, but except for some specific parts in it that are actually enforceable, uh, for the most part, it's not meant to be enforced. And um, when parties walk away from them, parties do not really enforce them. Huh. Are, are there are there other kinds of contracts where where people will will, will they'll make a deal, but if if the if somebody doesn't perform, they're they're not intending to actually enforce. Yeah, so so it's um, we see some of those right kind of permutations on this. So um, a good example is like a contract involving minors. So if you sign um, um, if you sign a contract involving a minor, that's often not enforceable, but people will behave like it's enforceable. Um, Andrew Gilden, who's now at Willamette, actually wrote his student note on an unenforced contract. Um, it's actually like production contracts in the adult film industry, which is really cool, and um, you know. No big deal. Some people were writing cool articles in their student notes and others of us were just trying to get through law school. That's fine. Whatever. I don't feel sad. Um, I'm good. Um, I'm kidding. Andrew's awesome. Um, and um, We'll have to have him on the podcast. He's awesome. Um, and then often, I mean, we do see lots of contracts that are really formal looking that are unenforced uh, in general, right? So um, a few years ago, there was this case called uh, Martin Marietta v. Vulcan. And it was this super long case about, like, it went through, uh, it was in Delaware, it took a really 
actually, I lied to you. It doesn't. It didn't actually take that long of a time to get through Delaware, but it was about a confidentiality agreement. And before that case, um, I specifically remember that uh, people didn't care that much about confidentiality agreements in that they didn't think that they were going to be enforced. Right? Um, there was a reason that I, uh, you know, super you know, first year associate was uh, entrusted with negotiating and, and drafting a bunch of confidentiality agreements because people didn't think they mattered. And then when the case came out, it became clear that actually they were enforceable and had been enforced. Huh. Do you think there's any possibility that uh, that term sheets might turn out the same way or are term sheets you're treated differently or is, is the language in them somehow different? Yeah. So the difference is that a confidentiality agreement is written like it's meant to be an enforceable agreement. And um, in general, parties, I think, think they are enforceable. It's just a question of will they actually try to enforce them in an M&A deal if it's breached? Um, or a lot of people just think that it won't come to that, right? People will behave. Um, term sheets are a little bit different. So a term sheet is usually like it's a short document that parties enter into at the beginning of a deal. Um, it contains both explicitly enforceable and explicitly unenforceable terms. So the paper, this one and the one before, which is kind of in, uh, the two of them form a set of papers about term sheets, um, are really about the unenforced part, the business terms like price, um, consideration, um, that kind of stuff that's not meant to be enforced. So it, you know, when, when, I, when I think about contracts, you know, oftentimes you're, you're thinking about it from the perspective of, you know, what is what is a court going to do, or you know, if, if something has to be, you know, interpreted, how, how is it going to be interpreted? I, I know you talked about um, there was a there was a wonderful case involving you know chicken sales, uh, <laughs> where there was a you know, controversy over what kind of chicken was a chicken. Um, yeah. What, what, what happened there? Yeah. So this is like a one L contracts case. So you might remember this. It's called Frigalamont v BNS. Um, and it's a case about chickens. Um, so BNS, which is a, was a New York company. This is in the Southern District of New York. Back then, I guess the Southern District of New York had more fun cases than, you know, securities class action. But anyways, um, uh, BNS was a New York company new to the chicken business and they agreed to ship, um, I think like almost 200,000, um, frozen chickens to Fergalamont, which is a, a Swiss company. So the Swiss company expected to get, um, choice young frying chickens. So for our purposes, that's, you know, the tasty good stuff of KFC. And BNS shipped them some older stewing chickens, which are old and tough, like you and me now, I guess. Um, <laughs> fair, fair. So um, there was kind of a, a, a gap in their expectation of what they thought was being shipped. So they just said chicken, and one party thought, yeah, any old chicken will do, literally. Um, and the other party was like, you know, when we say chicken, we really mean the nice stuff. Yeah. So, so why wouldn't, you know, if you have a, if you have an agreement, why wouldn't you want to be able to go to court to get it resolved? Well, you know, you hear you have a real dispute over what chicken means. Uh, what, why not, why not use a dispute resolution process like court or arbitration to, to just solve that fight? Yeah. So in that, case they did um, actually go to court. Um, and it, this case is actually, it wasn't like a term sheet case, right? So it was, I right. think- I, In I the term sheet of, context, why yeah. don't they do it? Yeah. So in the term sheet context, why don't they do it? Well, for one thing, um, term sheets are entered into at a time when uh, maybe parties decide that it's it's fine, like litigating um, 
litigating a dispute is going to be more expensive than just walking away and finding another deal. Um, so you were a litigator and um, I shudder to think how much you were being billed out as at, when you left the firm as like a senior associate. So um, yeah, I wouldn't want to spend any of your time on my dispute unless it was a really big deal. Um, so that's, I think, one of the reasons. The other thing that I think is increasingly important is privacy. Um, so if you go to court, you suddenly, you know, two major companies, it's it suddenly becomes crystal clear that they're fighting each other on something. Um, it's a bit of a norm to allow people to walk away from term sheets without too much of a fuss. So if you break that norm, people start thinking, you know, that you're not, you're not kind of clued into how the industry works. Maybe they don't enter term sheets with you in the future. And then finally, the other thing is, um, both litigation and M&A, I think, is really, really distracting to management. We want management really to be doing things like, um, you know, finding life-saving drugs or um, sourcing tomatoes or building widgets or whatever it is that they're doing. So if you can kind of walk away and call what your initial investment a sunk cost and just, you know, be chill about it, that's often a better, uh, better thing than, you know, tying yourself in another, you know, six months or several years worth of uh distracting and costly dispute resolution. Right. I, I, I can see how your management might not want a dispute afterward and a dispute afterward. Would, would it also like a, would a, would a dispute about a, a, a past blown deal would would that dispute hang over future deals? I think it would. Right. So this idea that like, um, so let's say you and I enter into a term sheet and you walk away and I take you to court. Um, everyone's going to be like, I'm not going to enter a term sheet with Kathy. Like she's, um, she's going to take me to court if we end up, um, not going, not, you know, getting along and deciding to go through with the deal. Cause remember that a term sheet isn't the deal, right? It's not an official signing, much less an official closing. We're talking about like basically an agreement to further explore the deal and see if it's valuable to both of us. Excellent. Uh, so, so what about informal enforcement? So people aren't going to go to court, uh, but is, is, is there any kind of reputational sanction if, if you, you, you walk away from uh, a deal? What happens? So, yeah. So when we're talking about informal enforcement, like you said, we're talking about reputational um, sanctions. Um, the people that I interviewed in general said that they did not like there's no kind of market wide reputational sanction. So I have some fun quotes in the paper, like um, I'm going to paraphrase. So someone said, for instance, um, sure, like if you walk away from a deal, that's bad. But if you want to come back to a later deal, your money is the same color as everyone else's. Uh, uh, so there's a strong belief that like walking away doesn't really harm your reputation. Um, the way that I think informal enforcement shows up is, um, and, and that I talk about more in the paper, is that an M&A deal is really like a multi-stage transaction, right? So in stage, let's call it three out of 10 when you're entering into your term sheet, Um you maybe want to go ahead and abide by what you agreed to because you, if the deal goes through, you got like, you know, seven more phases to keep dealing with these parties. And then once the deal closes, you're stuck with these people forever. Um, so it's nice to kind of be a good actor early on. Um, and if you're not a good actor early on within the kind of microcosm of the deal, you might get punished. So maybe your counterparty won't give you as much leeway. Maybe you, um, you know, miss a deadline and they're not as understanding, that kind of stuff. So you do want to build up your kind of reputation within that deal. So it's, it seems like you're, you're sort of building this relationship of, of trust and the, the term sheet yeah. is the, the one of the early moves, you know, in that. 
Um, yeah. You know, so yeah. How, how significant is the term sheet in the deal process? What, what, what big role does it play? So, yeah. So a term sheet is something that parties, well, the, the literature pre, uh, pre my papers um, really thought of a term sheet as like a first step in a transaction. So they're thinking like you and I go um, play, to, play a round of golf or, you know, because it's you and me play a round of uh, Mario Kart, maybe. Um, let's just yeah. be honest about who we are. Um, so, um, and then we're like, you know what? It'd be really cool to do a deal. Let's, I don't know why we're talking like this, but it's be really cool to do a deal. Let's do a deal. Um, so the literature kind of thinks of them as like first steps. Um, and then you enter a term sheet at that point. But what I found from my interviews is that uh, people are really entering to it entering into a term sheet when they've done a significant amount of diligence on each other already. So maybe after that initial Mario Kart, um, we, you know, have a couple more calls about whether the deal is going to go through. And then we've kind of outlined what we think it's going to look like. And then we're like, all right, hey, like maybe like uh, to analogize to writing a law paper, it's like, then we're like, hey, let's actually like write a basic couple page outline for what we're going to work on together. Um, And at that point, we can still walk away and we shouldn't feel like, you know, like, if we work on an outline together and you have something else that you want to do instead, like no hard feelings. Right. Um, so that's kind of the role it plays. I like to analogize it to, and this is like a weird thing. It's like the best analogy. I think um, it's kind of like an engagement entering into a term sheet, like between two people. So um, you're making some kind of commitment, but you can still walk away. But even that analogy is not perfect because if you break an engagement, you're sure going to hear about it from a lot of people or your friends and family or whatever. But in a term sheet, you really shouldn't hear about it from too many other people. So would you, would you think about it as like a, a lavalier, uh, like kind of like the, uh, uh, the, the college dating ritual where the, you, you give someone a pen or something. Where did you go to college friend? Oh boy. Yeah. This is, this is, this is South Carolina coming out. Um, so yeah, there, there's, there's a, there's a norm in that culture, uh, particularly in the you know, fraternity and sorority world, which I, I wasn't really a part of mm-hmm, Sure, where people would, would give their, their pen to their, their other and it like was a sort writing of a, utensil pen? No, no, they have these pins they would wear on their shirts. Uh and you know, they would give the pin as as a symbol of of intent in some sense that oh you know stars. later they might be <laughs> I, yeah. so I am not aware of this ritual. Yes, yes. And so so it's it seems it seems like there's there is a you know an early stage, you know, ritual. Yeah, I think uh, so, it so is an early stage ritual. I don't I don't know about this pin business, but I'm I'm excited to uh Yes. <laughs> yeah, 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 apparently, we've got to learn more about this pin. So, so, but, but dating is a metaphor you use in the paper uh, to describe the process. Uh, and, you know, the term sheets, you know, people have been talking for some time and they're building some trust. Uh, you know, it's, it's like could, if, if, if trust breaks down after the term sheet, how hard does it get to close a deal? Is, is it, you, do people abide by it because they just, they just need the trust? Yeah, I think it's a, it's like, it's like any other thing that you do kind of, so like, we'll go back to this early, like multi-stage example, right? Like, so, um, it's really like, it's a way, if you behave well in the term sheet process and in some other kind of early stage processes, you're kind of like, you know, peacocking a little bit, right? Showing that you're going to be a good, um, deal partner. Yeah, exactly. Look how reasonable I am. You want to work with me. Cause so when I was in practice, I remember a partner said, you know, an MA deal is like a marriage, right? If this thing goes through, you guys are stuck together forever. 
Um, so you're doing like this whole process of like an exclusivity agreement, a confi, a term sheet, cooperating during early diligence, like cooperating during like the interim period between signing and closing, um, good communication, like responsiveness, all of that stuff is about, you know, getting ready for that big day at the end, you know, nine o'clock Eastern Standard Time uh, at, you know, where you send that wire transfer and you all are stuck together forever. Right. So um, I like to think about it as like squeezing the toothpaste tube from the bottom or the middle. Like what's going to happen to you if you squeeze the toothpaste tube from the middle? I don't know. Like I'll just think you're a terrible person and no. <laughs> Very <laughs> strong views. <laughs> but, you know, squeezing it from the bottom, even though, you know, that's a little bit of a hassle for you, um, just goes to show that you're going to be such a great whatever partner forever. Yeah, you don't waste toothpaste. Yes, so. you're not a toothpaste wasteroo, as the Sesame Street would call it. So, so I'm I'm fascinated by this uh, in, in part because you, a big M and A deal is so different than haggling over a used car. You know, yeah. if if yeah. you're if you're kind of a jerk in the negotiating process, uh, the tires are still going to have the same amount of tread. You know, there's there's not going to be you know any real change. Yeah. But these are they're, they're teams of people and relationships that you're bringing over. And yeah. if you're a jerk in the deal process, what what are, what are executives on the other side going to do? Do they do they have to stay? Yeah. So um, often in an M and A deal, people will leave, right? But uh, by showing that you're a reasonable partner, like you're helping to smooth that eventual integration process. So. Um, there's this um, – so Oliver Hart, who won the Nobel Prize a couple of years ago for, for econ, um, had this paper about um, shading and contracts. So the idea is that like there's different levels of performance, right? Con a contract will say like um, you must perform X, but there's kind of a lot of room – for what X means. And if you kind of hang on to that idea, you kind of understand why it's so important to behave well in an M&A deal. So um, think about like, um, let's say you're about to buy a company, right? And you say you have to bring over materially all of your clients. Um, and um, uh, that might mean, you know, if you're, if you're not being a good player, the other side could um, kind of shade on their performance of that obligation right. and bring over, yeah, you know, 60%. That's material. Yeah. But if you're really nice to them, maybe they'll bring over 90% and that's what you want, right? right. Um, I think um, if you think about it, like uh, even like a used car situation, right? Like you're haggling over the used car. If you're not a huge jerk, the other side's going to maybe give it a nice car wash before. But if you are a huge jerk, maybe they're going to take it out on a 200 mile joyride. <laughs> Right, or if you're if you're if you're selling a house, are they going to leave it clean? Yeah. Uh, or you know, what what are you going to have to do? Are they going to take the light bulbs? You know, those those sorts of questions. I think exactly. Yeah, totally. Although are light bulbs fixtures? I don't know. Ask a property I, person. I, I I that's we're gonna have to get Molly Brady for that. Exactly, paging Molly Brady. So so, so these you know these these M and A deals they are you know huge uh, sort of structures, and you, you talk about how you're you're building this. Uh, scaffolding to to generate the rest of the deal. Like, how hard are these deals to pull off? 
oh my gosh, they're really hard, right? So um, I like to think that like a junior lawyer, a good kind of first or second year M&A lawyer is really like just an exceptional, exceptional like legal assistant or secretary. So, you know, you're building this. So usually I wish I could show you, right? Like um, in a deal, you usually have like this checklist and it's, it can be like 20 pages long, 12 point font, each with like a line of something that you need to execute. And all of these things must come into play in concert at the same time for the deal to actually be able to be pulled off. Um, I like to think of that scene from like Beauty and the Beast when like Lumiere and all of the other, you know, animated furniture items are dancing around. It's like a huge coordination project. So there are just tons of what we call like mundane transaction costs um, that are standing in the way of this deal existing. So, so transaction costs, you know, people sometimes use or wave their hands and say, oh, transaction costs. These are, these are significant. Like it's like, how, 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 how do these work? What are, what are, what are the, the big barriers? Well, yeah, we're not talking um, necessarily about economic transaction costs. So we're not talking about things like information asymmetry, right? Or challenges associated with the specifying performance obligations. We're not really talking about that. We're talking about the fact that like, at some point, the parties just need to sit together and make sure they're, that they're on like the same page about like what the deal generally looks like, right? Like what parts of your business are you going to be selling? What do you want in terms of consideration? Um, is it going to be stock? Is it going to be cash? And approximately how much of that stock or cash do you want? So at some point, people just need to sit down and be able to like put pen to paper. It's almost like a, like a, like a, um, a trust building exercise or like a teamwork exercise. They just need to be able to like work on it together. That's the kind of transaction cost that we're mitigating for here. Oh my gosh. This is a, this is a, a lot. Um, so the, you you had a, you you pursued this interesting process for generating this research. I you you can't find this in case law. Uh, you're not you're not able to dig this information out that way. How how did you learn all this stuff about how this practice goes down at the high level? Yeah. So one of the key things, as you mentioned, is the fact that there's not. Um there's not really case law, right? And that's that's kind of one of the cool findings is that people don't yeah, there's aren't no really litigating. There's no case law. Yeah, I mean, I did like a Westlaw, like a, a big Westlaw search and like read all the cases that came back and there's a very, very small number of them. Um, so how do we find out this information? Well, you can't look really at like, I don't know, you could look at... Um, you could look at proxy statements and like the description of the merger section. Um, but um, those are all about public deals and public deals don't really use term sheets either. And in any case, if your deal falls through, you don't file anything anyway, like at the term sheet phase, if it falls through, you don't file anything. So that's not a good way either. I use interviews. I think there are kind of two ways to do this research, three ways to do this research, I guess, interviews, surveys, and like infiltrating a company. So interviews is what I chose to go with. So I basically use like a snowball sampling technique. So I um, called, up some, called up some people I knew at various firms. I talked to them about this project um, and what they did. And then I talked to other people. I said, like, could you, could you recommend a couple other people that I could talk to? And then got like, you know, a sample of people from various firms practicing in various cities, trained at various places, um, all of whom, of course, do private deals. But some of them also do a good amount of public deals. And then just ask them, like, what is it that you do? Tell me about this practice. This is this is so because if you're if you're not in this space, how else would you learn any of this? I mean, it's it's basically. I mean, like I said, you could do surveys, right? So you could send out like you know surveys to all top M and A lawyers in the U S. and have them fill it out. I think your um, response rate yeah. would be pretty low on that. I, I, I don't fill out. Uh, <laughs> I, mean, I just delete. Surveys Dear Professor Edwards, me. please answer this survey from someone you don't know. Probably going right. to hit delete on that one. Yeah. Um, 
you could also like, I always say like, man, I wish I had like, I wish I could have another year at the firm with all of my research questions. And I could just be like undercover. That would be right. really amazing. <laughs> yeah, this, is, uh, this is the infiltration tactic. Yeah, infiltration. I want to be an undercover, uh, undercover M&A researcher. Um, you know. so there, there was, I think, uh, there's, there's an ethnography of Wall Street uh, written by, um, I think, a PhD in, in anthropology. Uh, it's, 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 it's a few years old. Uh, but it, it was, you know, she, she pursued the infiltration strategy and the, the work was amazing. I mean, but, you know, absent that, absent being in the space, talking to people in the space seems like the only way to learn what's happening. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is, have you, I, there used to be this old Twitter account her, called something like overheard in the Goldman elevator or something like oh, that. Oh, yes, yes. You yes. <laughs> can just ride the elevator at big firms up and down all day and see what you hear. Yeah. You got to get past security first for that. So. I feel like I could get sneaked in. Yeah, it's like, a good chance. Yeah. What do I it's have to pay chance. them? What's the bribe situation? They're all rich. Not too much. It's good. No. <laughs> like, they're like, no, have a thousand dollars. They're like, no, thank you. <laughs> so what, what, what surprised you the most as you were, as you were going through this? Is, is there, is there, what, what, what did you learn that you just weren't expecting? Yeah. So initially with my last paper, which is the first of the series, the thing I really thought was I, I get one and my hypothesis was that, um, these weren't going to be formally enforced, but maybe there would be informal enforcement. And what I found was people told me, no, there's not really informal enforcement because except for a couple of really big players that are kind of like repeatedly, like certain private equity um, companies that are repeatedly like um, buying and selling, like people don't, people aren't going into the market enough to get a reputation or they're buying in like lots of different cities. Where, so they're not like, the reputation isn't being built up. Um, so the informal enforcement piece was a lot smaller than I than I thought it would be. Um, but I was also really surprised at the fact that informal enforcement still exists once you kind of tease it out a bit. Um, so I didn't talk, so in this new paper, um, the thing that kind of was able to tease out from spending more time with this is that, um, once you start it like the Pringles, right? Once you pop, you just can't stop. Like right. once you start the M&A deal, you start to have a relationship with the people on the other side. Um, and you are starting to work toward a common goal. So you have a reputation within that deal. And so that's really causing you to behave well within that deal. Even if in the broader market, there's not really a reputational sanction. Okay. So, so the, because, so the deal process is ongoing. And so bad behavior at one point in the deal process will make all of the other. So if you're, if you're coordinating this, this dancing furniture, uh, <laughs> you know, for and candlesticks and candlesticks or, you know, this, this, this big closing, uh, then if you, if you start rubbing people the wrong way early, it's going to be very hard to get all that done. Yeah. And frankly, like, look, there are also lawyers and the lawyers um, act as um, intermediaries and they have their reputation to think about. And also just having been on a deal like, like, man, like you're working like even as a junior, right? Like a first or second year, you're working closely with the junior on the other side to do things like deliver the documents at the end of signing or deliver the documents at the end of closing or deliver the stock certificates or whatever. Right. So like, um, 
if you are pleasant and reasonable, you just make that process a lot better. Like I remember deals where I worked across from someone who was just like mean for no reason. And that was just very unpleasant. Um, or if you worked with someone who was pleasant, like I remember being like some, you know, uh, someone staffed above me would say like, oh, we're having trouble doing X, Y, Z. And I'd be like, oh, no, I have a good relationship with the junior. I'll just call them and ask them if they can, they can give that to us. So, so, so it's sort of those relationships allow you to get things done for your client and facilitate the deal. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I guess ultimately, you know, at the, at the end of the day, the people selling the company want to get paid and the people buying the company want the company. Yes, they do. So they, they have these, they have these strong incentives to continue the deal as long as it makes sense. And remember that if it's like a strategic M and a, like, you are looking to buy a company and there aren't maybe that many of them out there that you want, right? You're not just like, with some exceptions, you're not really, you know, going out and just being like, I got, you know, I got a billion dollars burning a hole in my, in my pocket. Let's go for it. Um, We are talking about um, wanting to buy a particular type of software or a particular team or whatever that you in particular want. So you're pretty incentivized to behave well so you can actually get that deal done. So, so the companies. And their product, the, the the companies you're buying, they're not commodities. They're not interchangeable. It's not no, like if, if I don't if I don't use this broker to execute my tr- stock transaction, I can just go buy the same shares from somebody else. Exactly. Okay, these are very unique goods. Or I guess good. Like they're, a matching unique... market almost, right? Like it's like yeah. a kidney. Like sure, there are other kidneys out there, but there aren't that many other kidneys out there. Oh my gosh. Well, um, yeah, I can see why people want to behave nice when they're going under the knife. And also, so, isn't it so nice just to be nice? It is. It is. And it, it's good to see uh, that that's happening in this space. So, well, thank you so much uh, for this conversation and this piece. Uh, it's going to be in the Virginia Law Review, and it should be out later this year. Yeah, I'm super excited. Thank you so much for interviewing me. Um, thanks also to, you know, the, the nice editors at Virginia who have done a really good job on this. Excellent. Well, well take care. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. But it ain't like the one you got in your
for a bad place. So take a dip, hold your lip, and don't you advertise your Don't you have a time? 